In order to, to really learn about what seeing is, we need to study blind people. Um, and that, um, in fact, when you do so, and if you're lucky enough to find somebody that is gifted and able to convey in a way that a sighted person can understand what the internal representation is for that person, um, it, like Eshref, then uh, you have a unique opportunity. You have somebody that is able to translate for sighted to understand what really is in all blind people, um, in all sighted people. Um, so, so with that in mind, uh, I want to tell you about work done by uh, Amira Mehdi, uh, largely, uh, who is here. So if I say something that, uh, that is wrong, he'll, he'll correct me. He's also sitting right there. Um, so <laughs> um, and it's work done with the collaboration with a number of a number of people uh, in, the, in, in my lab in, in, in Boston. Um, and also thanks to the, the collaboration with a number of folks at the Biomedical Imaging Center at Boston University. Um, so um, we've been uh, fortunate to have the support from, from the NIH uh, to be able to do this work, so I'd like to, to acknowledge that. But the motivation for it um, really goes back to art again. So uh, I'd like to share with you two quotes uh, of uh, one person becoming blind, uh, Monet, uh, who, um, as he was uh, over and over painting the same garden scene with a different chromatic uh, hue and becoming um, uh, blind because of his retinal disease, um, stated, I wish I had been born blind because I would have been, um, and it would have enhanced my artistic perception of the world. Um, putting it more bluntly, Picasso said, painting is a blind man's profession as blind people have a clearer vision of reality. <coughs> so what I like to tell you is um, essentially the tale of somebody who is born blind and is able to convey the internal representation of the world for sighted to understand. And that's this fellow here who you've already met, Eshref Armagan. Now, just a couple of uh, more things. I'm a neurologist by training, so I, I get picky about uh, whether people are really congenitally blind or not congenitally blind and this kind of thing. So um, we've, we've know a number of things about, about him. Uh, first of all, we know that there is absolutely no light perception now. He has absent brain responses to light. He has absent retinal responses to light. So the retinogram is flat. The second thing we know is that he never had one eye. Um, so at very, very best, he had a one-eyed vision, which, by the way, means that the kind of perspective that um, John was telling us about would have been impossible for him to learn even if he had seen, um, which I think is an important, an important point. But even in that one eye that he has, it's a rudimentary knob of an eye. It was never really formed properly, and there is profound changes in the retina that suggest that if there was ever light perception, it was at best just that, some light perception, and never really true vision. Unfortunately, the first evaluation by an ophthalmologist that he had was done quite late in his life, when he was about 12. Um, and uh, at that time, he had no vision at all. Um, so it's difficult to know for sure in before. But if he had anything, it was very, very little, very rudimentary, one-eyed light vision. He did grow up in a very poor family, and he did spend his time because nobody dealt with him and they left him as too stupid to, to make anything out of him. Um, he spent his life in front of the small store of, of uh, uh, little souvenirs that the family had, 
drawing on uh, the ground and feeling the pattern that he had uh, generated and trying to imagine looking at it from a different point and sitting at a different spot and spent hours on end that way while the family was at the store, which I think is an important uh, argument for, for the, along the lines of what, what John Kennedy was just telling us. And essentially what he does now is exactly the same. He draws, as you see here, by using a pencil, pressing hard on the paper, which he usually rests on a soft um, a pad, uh, and uh, that creates a, a relief, and so he's able to feel that indentation with the other finger and keep track of where he is along the shape he's trying to generate by keeping track with the second hand of the indentations that he's generating. Now, if what he generates is obvious for all of us to see from a sighted uh, perspective as unequivocally something, then it must mean that he has an internal representation of the object in a visual frame of reference. And this is the kind of drawings that he generates. Um, color, which he adds to his paintings, is added afterwards. He feels and remembers where his uh, um, planes were, and because of the semantic knowledge that he has, people have told him that roofs are red, he goes back and fills that in. He goes back to the trees and fills those in, in, in green, and so forth. So he starts with the drawing. When he's using painting, he starts with thick lines of paint, using it the same way as outlines uh, of, the, of the objects. You can give him a photograph of somebody, and if you trace it out for him, in the back, trace it out for him, then he will feel that and will be able to generate an image of it and translate it into something that we all recognize as Bill. Um, <laughs> now, if you notice, shades, are of a rather remarkable hue. Now, this is not because of some artistic liberty in him. He actually believed, until he was told otherwise, that if an object was pink, and he had been told skin is pink, then the shade of that pink object ought to be dark pink. The shade of a green tree ought to be dark green, and so forth. And then he was told, no, well, that's not how it works. Uh, so his sh shadows never remain of the same color afterwards, but they, they are still there uh, at, this, at this stage. And this is uh, one of his paintings. Okay, so what is going on? <coughs> what is going on is like Picasso and Monet and any other painter before or after him, uh, he's capturing reality in some way or another. He is processing that reality, generating a, a representation of it in the brain. He is able to reveal the internal representation that is in his brain through his drawings, and uh, therefore, at the end, we have a drawing that we can understand. In his case, he can feel the object, he can draw it and sketch it out, he can generate the picture, as you see here. But what I like to focus on is what is going on in his brain to be able to to um, make that possible. So I'm going to take as a given that this is a very gifted uh, man in his capacity to take an internal representation and translate it into a picture. Just like Picasso or Monet or any sighted uh, artist. That's not fundamentally different, or at least maybe, but it's not the focus of what I'm going to try to, to explore. What I want to try to explore is what goes on in his brain that may reveal something about what goes on in the brain of all artists and all the brain of all of us. And there are three things uh, that I like to, to focus on. First is 
what do we learn about understanding shape? How do we generate an internal representation of a shape of an object? The second thing is, what do we learn about seeing with the mind's eye as the means of actually making sure, double-checking ourselves, that the internal representation that we have is in visual frame of reference, is going to be understandable for the sighted when I m make it uh, into a drawing. The third point is uh, how does he actually produce the drawing of the painting? What is different about that than making some sort of scribble? How does he translate the shape? This is almost repetitious to what John has already showed in much more detail, but if you give him an object, and this is relevant for the experiments that we're going to, to be uh, sharing with you, he can represent it right away. You can give him a, a cup to explore for 30 seconds or a minute, he will explore it. You can give him then 30 seconds to draw a sketch of it from a given vantage point from the side, from the top, and he will be able to do this. With rather simple objects, but with the same time constraints, he can do significantly more complicated objects, like a toy elephant, or even more complicated, like a person sitting on a bench. He was so impressed by his whole generation that he signed, signed this one. He <laughs> thought that was very cool. He thought this was difficult, but this is a 30-second generation of a drawing. Um, all right, so let me start with the question of shape first. What do we know about shape in the brain before we even go into to it? And what, I, what I like to, to share with you is, is one, there's much that we know and much that we don't know, but there is one thing that we've learned, and again, I'm borrowing work from, from Amir uh, Amedi to, to show you this. Um, if uh, sighted subjects are laying in an MRI scanner and uh, you look at the brain activity associated when they see objects, when they see pictures of objects, and compare that with seeing the same picture but scrambled so that it's the same visual input but there is no object that you can see, it's just noise. You see activity in a number of areas, among others, this area here that I'm going to focus on called the lateral occipital um, region. LOC, lateral occipital complex. The same area, or part at least of the same area, will also be activated if you present the sighted subjects not with visual pictures of the objects, but with tactile objects that they have to explore. They explore them, they may or may not make a visual <coughs> image of it in their mind, but they activate the same area, and it is uh, shown here in yellow if you compare it with just feeling textures, tactile textures. So there is an area of the brain that is act a rather specific area of the brain that is activated by recognizing something as an object, be it through touch or be it through sight. It doesn't really matter in the sighted. If you, however, present auditory cues, for example, if I give you this as an object and you feel it by touch, or I play you a click, 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 tick, tock, tock, or whatever the, the, the watch may make, um, then you still recognize the object by the characteristic sound it makes, but it doesn't activate that area. So it's not by virtue of identifying the object as what it is, it is the shape of the object, be it by touch or by sight, that generates the, the activation there. And the same activation is there if you are a sighted person or if you are congenitally blind. Um, in the interest of time, I won't show, go through all this thing, but these are, flatten out brains, so you can cut through the brain and flatten it out and it shows you here the front and here the back of the brain. It's a funky way of, of showing it. But essentially, 
what you see there is the same type of activity, you also notice that there is a lot more activity in the back of the brain, in the quote-unquote visual part of the brain, in the blind than in the sighted for this task. And I'll come back to that. This is just a comparison up here of the sighted and the blind subjects. So blind subjects have more activity in these visual areas, including this lateral occipital area, than the sighted controls for touching the objects. And you can go through a number of additional controls to be sure that what you're looking at is indeed the touching the objects rather than moving the hands uh, and so forth. Now what happens with distant objects? Because see, Eshref, I was showing you, is able to draw the house, uh, John was telling us. Um, so it's not just an object that he can palpate here. Well, let me borrow from John Hull, uh, who in, in his very uh, remarkable book, Touching the Rock, um, says, a blind person uh, lives in a world strangely devoid of objects. He's referring to the fact that a sighted person can be walking around and see objects all around him, whereas the, the world of uh, blind uh, will be much narrower in, in, its, in its dimension, except when rain presents the fullness of the entire situation all at once. When rain gives a sense of perspective as it hits the different planes and brings out the relationship of one part of the world to another uh, and the presence of <coughs> objects out there. Now we cannot emulate rain to the blind person. That's a bit tough to do um, in, the, in the MRI scanner. Um, but you can generate shape by sound information. So you can use an algorithm, for example, the one called the voice, um, that developed by Peter Meyer in, in um, Holland, which allows to capture an image, a video image, and translate it into a soundscape. Now the way it does it is uh, shown here. Um, it has very simple rules. Frequency of the sound is going to tell you something about how high an object is, how high in your, in your world. Um, loudness is going to tell you something about how bright an object is, how much luminance it has. And time, to scan from left to right, is going to tell you something about the location from left to right, the stereo panning. That's it. Now that generates rather strange soundscapes. So for a picture like this, the soundscape will be this. Now, I don't know if you can figure that out, but uh, <laughs> let me do it again. But blind people that use this system can. They can become so proficient users of this that they will unequivocally find the opening in that wall and walk through it. Um, while at the same time listening to you speak to them and hold a conversation because see, these sounds I can see, the other sounds, your voice, I hear. That's what they say. So we were curious about this. Uh, how do they, people like Pat Fletcher or Adam Scheible, um, who are one a late blind and one a congenitally blind person that truly has never seen, uh, but are proficient users of this system, how do they um, see with the sound when you present an object? Do they use the same LO, lateral occipital area, that I was showing you um, a moment ago? So that's the experiment with Adam Scheible. 
So this is what he hears. And he says, I can see a hand, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the scramble pictures that we were presenting to the subjects would sound like this. So in both so uh, cases, a soundscape that is rather complex, and you can then compare that with a number of different um, uh, controls, including the sound that the objects will make, the kikirikiki, um, as well as the name of the object. So there's, of course, going to be activity in the auditory cortex. There's going to be activity in some other areas of the brain. For the sake of this uh, discussion, I want to show you what happens in this lateral occipital uh, region. In the LO complex, you can see here activated, there is activity not to all the stimuli. There is activity to the objects as presented by the voice, to the soundscapes that I was just showing you. There is activity to the tactile objects. But there is no activation of the sound that the characteristic sound that the animal would make in this case. Summarizing it here, so the tactile object activates. We knew that from congenitally blind already and from decided already. The sound that the animals uh, make doesn't activate, but the voice, the soundscape, activates in these people. They're using the same resources. And in fact, the activation that you see looks like the activation that would happen in the blind, in the sighted person if you were presented a picture. So when they say, I see it, from a brain activity point of view, if you were looking at the LO activity, you would say brain activity-wise, they seem to see it. It doesn't look any different. You wouldn't be able to tell that there was anything different there. So, so much for shape representation. There is the, the machinery, that's the first message, in the brain, identically so in the sighted and in the congenitally blind, to process and identify objects and their shape. It's already laid out. Uh, the question is, how do you tap onto that part of the brain that has that capacity and that function? Now you need to generate the internal image of it to make it into a frame of my, uh, reference that would be identifiable by a sighted. And that, I will argue, requires mental imagery, requires the visual image to be generated. So can sighted people do this? Yes, we can all make a mental image. But when we do that, what do we actually do? And can blind people do it? So this is, again, work from um, fMRI studies of uh, Amir. Um, you can show subjects these objects or the scrambled pictures of them, and the, you can have them look at the objects, and that will activate certain parts of the brain, scramble objects that activate certain parts of the brain, or tell them the word, the name of the object, and have them imagine it. And the most striking thing that you will see here is that most of what happens with the imagery is actually not red and yellow. It's not activation. It's in blue. It's suppression. Most of what happens in the brain when you're doing visual imagery is you activate a little bit the visual pathways, the same ones that would be activated when you see something, but you also activate a lot. You actually suppress a lot other parts of the brain. Now, what other parts of the brain are there? This is just to show you that this is true on every subject that, you, that we've looked at. So the parts of the brain that they are are the, som the, the somatosensory cortex, 
the connections in the subcortical structures that we call lateral geniculate nucleus and superior colliculus that are stations of information from the visual world to come into the cortex, and particularly the auditory cortex right here. So in other words, what is going on when you're doing visual imagery seems to be that you shut down non-visual areas. And you shut them down driven by the prefrontal cortex, it seems like. So a top-down signal from part of the brain appears to be able to shut down non-visual areas, and in doing so, makes us able to generate a pure visual image. Um, so the argument would be that when sighted people see something, when we see something, we also activate tactile and auditory areas. So in fact, seeing for a sighted is also touching and is also hearing and is intrinsically a multisensory percept. It's not pure seeing. That is something we actually don't know what it is unless we do visual imagery. Because when we do pure visual imagery, when we just imagine the image of an object, in order to do that, we need to disconnect the visual system from the auditory and the tactile system. And thus, visual imagery becomes the isolated activation of the visual system. And in an artificial brain level point of view, pure seeing. So the argument would be that in order to purely see, you need to be blind. <laughs> so, in fact, if it's possible to bring in the information from shape and generate a representation of the objects, and my argument is that's possible in all of us, whether you're blind or sighted, because it's the same machinery that does it. And it's true that visual imagery is easier to do in the blind, because you don't need to contend with the same inputs of the non-visual systems. Then the only question is, can you translate what you have inside into something for others to recognize? Um, and in order to do that, you need to be able to draw. And I'm not very good at it, but Eshref is, as, as uh, John Kennedy has, has just shown you. So you can actually put him in the MRI scanner and give him objects to feel or give him names of objects to imagine, get him to draw objects while he's laying on his belly um, with a piece of paper, or get him to scribble lines around so that you have some control of his motor actions. Since you're giving him names, when you tell him to imagine, you want to control for the processing of the name, so you want some verbal control. And since you're having him move the hand to draw, you want to take that out as the, of the mix as well, so you need some controls for that. So this is the kind of pictures that he will generate being in the scanner. Now remember, I mean, none of us has any problems identifying this as a toothbrush, I think. If you do, let me know. I'm interested in visual agnosias, and I'll be happy to, <laughs> to, 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 uh, to test you afterwards. But for the most part, this is an obvious toothbrush. And this is done with him laying in a scanner, having clicking noises all around him, somebody handing him objects and telling him, go, 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 we have just 20 seconds. <laughs> and this is their attempts to make lines without making a shape. So what, what happens in the brain when you contrast those two conditions, drawing versus scribbling? Well, you see activity in the prefrontal cortex. This is the same part of the brain that drives the suppression of the areas for the imagery that I was telling you about. Um, when you do imagery, you activate the prefrontal cortex and that shuts down apparently non-visual areas to make us able, as sighted, able to have visual imagery. Same areas activated here. 
I won't go into this, um, but these are the time courses for the different tasks. Um, it just, it, I'll just tell you the take home message and we can go into the details for, for those of you that are interested. But you see activity there, you see activity in the lateral occipital cortex in the same area of shape. And remember, this is drawing versus scribble. He needs the access to this shape to be able to do it and indeed that uh, area is activated. And finally, you see activity in the visual cortex, in the primary visual cortex. And now there's nothing coming in, there's nothing being seen, unless in order to really become aware of what is going on, you need a top-down activation of the visual cortex. Um, because awareness may be an interactive process that, that requires closing the loop of, of activity around the brain. So this is a brain inflated looking at the um, activity when he's doing this, this drawing versus scribbling, what I just showed you with the visual cortex activity. I want to bring in one last piece to the, to the puzzle. If you just look at the verbal memory when he's trying to remember words, then you see that there is no activity in the visual cortex. Now the reason why that is interesting is because, so if you focus on that visual area, you see activity for drawing, you see no activity for verbal memory, but in fact, early blind subjects normally do show activity for, for verbal memory. This is what sighted subjects would show in terms of activity when they are seeing. So we're talking about activity in the same areas that he shows for drawing and that a lot of early blind subjects show for verbal memory. In fact, it's also work from Amir Ahmedi showing that if you take a group of congenitally blind and you have them do a verbal memory task or some verb generation task, they will activate a number of areas, but most notably, and different from sighted, they will activate the visual cortex. And if you block that part of the brain, then they are not able to do the task anymore. So in fact, they're using resources of the visual cortex for verbal memory. The more activity they show in the visual cortex, the, more, the better they are at verbal memory. So why doesn't Eshref show it? He is an early blind, that's for sure. He may not be a congenitally blind, he may have had some visual signal, but he is for sure an early blind. So the argument that I like to make is that in fact, there's only so many resources that can be used in this visual area. You can use them for verbal memory by tapping onto resources that were available for seeing, but are untapped because you're not seeing uh, in that sense as the sighted persons do. But if you become very, very good at drawing, you essentially take away some of the resources, you devote them for drawing, and in doing so, you are stuck, in quotes, with less ability to tap onto the verbal memory. Instead of remembering what people tell you, like sighted people would do by taking a note, a blind person has to rely on the verbal memory, remembering what they told them, or in the case of Eshref, make a sketch. And if you make a drawing sketch, you use those same resources, but then it's activated for drawing, not for verbal memory. And consistent with that, your verbal memory will not be very good, and in fact, his verbal memory is very poor um, in keeping with his lack of education program. So, to wrap it up, um, I think what Ezref shows us is the representation of objects, in general of reality, can be acquired without vision. And it can be translated into an image that can be unequivocally understood by vision uh, that he is an example of. Now, unless we say that he is 
a complete bizarre thing, accident of nature, and my argument is that he's not, then um, what this shows us is that this ability to draw, which is true in some blind people like him and is true in uh, some sighted people like Picasso or Dali or uh, any number of others, what all it's doing us is providing us a means to understand what's going on inside. What is going on inside is that he has this representation like all blind people do, and that the generation of such images is in fact associated with activity in the same brain areas that are activated during visual imagery in the sighted. And in that sense, it is, from the neural point of view, pure seeing. So all people sighted or congenitally blind have internal representations of objects and scenes within a visual frame of reference. A new concept of visual uh, becomes necessary then uh, to, to implement. Eshref is just able to demonstrate that through the, his art. Seeing becomes um, two different things. If the way I've been talking about it, um, the ex if it is the re experience resulting from the activation of the visual system, then it is actually independent of the visual input because you can activate it without visual input. And in that sense, blind people see. In the sense that of a behavioral point of view, what it is for sighted people to say, I see, then they don't see. But the reason why they don't see is because in fact what as a sighted person I'm calling seeing is not just seeing, is seeing and touching and hearing and smelling. And that is changing my seeing as in like pure seeing. And I'll stop there. <laughs>